Welcome to the Change Management Review Podcast, where we bring the best in change to you. In this episode of the Change Management Review from the Field Series, Managing Editor Brian Gorman interviews Daniel Locke, Principal of Daniel Locke Consulting. In this part one of a two-part series, Brian and Daniel discuss nine change management principles from research. Hello, this is Brian Gorman, the Managing Editor of Change Management Review. Welcome to this version of From the Field. Our podcast guest today is Daniel Locke. Daniel is the principal of Daniel Locke Consulting, helping to unlock value, improve productivity, to achieve breakthrough performance through change, project management, and process improvement. Daniel has worked with large banking corporations in Australia, including Westpac, National Australia Bank, Macquarie Bank, as well as numerous smaller organizations, helping them to improve processes, operations, and business reorganizations. He is a regular speaker on the topic of change management and has had his work published in CIO.com.au, Process Excellence Network, and Management Today to name but a few publications. The facilitation of collaboration workshops to develop strategy, implementing innovation strategies, and process improvements are key tools used in his work. Welcome to our podcast, Daniel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I should tell our listeners that this is actually going to be a two-part podcast um, because when we looked at what Daniel has to offer us and um, we just couldn't figure out how to fit it all into one 20 minute uh, break. So Daniel, let's start. Um, what, what we looked at was a rather extensive blog um, that described the nine change management principles from research that you wrote and this uh, post is on your website. Would you briefly describe what those nine principles from research are? Sure. So um, I'll start from the top. Uh, first one is principle one, creating a crisis. Um, do you want me just to list them from top to bottom there first, Brian? Yeah, yeah, go ahead and list them. And then we're going to dive into some of them in, in some detail. So that would be great. Okay, great. So create a crisis, number one. Number two, get specific. Number th- three, collaborate for change in that people don't resist what they create. Principle four, focus on change readiness, balanced for change resistance. Five, rigorous implementation planning averts resistance. Principle six, align leadership and involve every layer Principle seven, use to-go thinking and focus on what you will do. Principle eight, communicate, 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 but don't be ridiculous. And principle nine, get some grit. So some of these resonate probably with every change practitioner around the globe and are integral to change methodologies around the world as well. But other principles probably sound somewhat antithetical to a lot of our listeners. I know some of them did to me. I'd like to focus our conversation on those ones. 
Let's begin with principle one, create a crisis. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, what I mean by that, Brian, is that um, something's needed to galvanize us to help us move. Something creates the context for us in which we are then uh, intrinsically motivated. So, um, for example, you know, we all know how to lose weight. You know, we need to eat less and exercise more. But knowing that doesn't really make any difference. And so the question I what is going to be the thing that's going to actually motivate us to, you know, eat less and exercise more. And um, for some of us, it might be, I, I think it's really creating that crisis. And so we have to really in, you know, have that crisis. May, we need to make that real for ourselves. You know, if we don't get healthy, then you know, a person might get diabetes and die or they get their, you know, go blind and if they, or, or, or something along those lines. And I think that can then become some sort of crisis. Some people um, have a near-death experience or, or someone in their family and loved one dies and, and, and suddenly you know, they change everything about their life. Something to galvanise themselves into taking action. Now, that's at a personal level, but I don't, you know, organisations are in the end made up of lots of individuals. And I think the same thing applies with organisations. And I think change leaders need to do the same thing which is to um, create the urgent case for change. And, you know, by asking questions, which is what I elicit in here, which is what is the default future of our department or organisation? If we don't take action now, where will we end up? If we don't act now, what risks will we, will we be exposed to? And if we don't act now, what opportunities will we miss? And I think for all change leaders to ask and answer those, leader, those questions and then articulate that, to the organisation is a process of which they can create that urgent case for change or create the crisis. Um, some organisations, the, the crisis is near and present. You know, if they don't start to turn things around, they're going to go out of business. For others, um, big organisations, they're probably not going to go out of business, but there's a big, you know, ship with inertia that in a sense, you don't artificially create it because that's not what I'm recommending here, but I'm saying that we need to articulate the reasons for change so that, that they can galvanise people against the status quo. One of the, um, the, the things that I remember from one of my early, early change management trainings was that um, the organisation can be in crisis um, but if the leadership has a golden parachute, um, it's hard to get the rest of the organization moving. Uh, have you run into situations like that, Daniel? Oh, for sure. Look, you know, they can be on small levels and big levels, you know. Um, um, you know, the... the in, look, the same is for myself, you know. I talk about losing weight, there's always in times of my life where, you know, like right now I probably, I feel as though I should lose a few kilos, but, you know, can I really get motivate myself? How, I'm just not willing to create that crisis for myself. Um, in organisations, you know, um, I've definitely made proposals with, to organisations that were of which I could see a change being worth their while, but not being able to get it doesn't show up like an important problem for them. And the question that you have as a change manager 
is to help change leaders uh, see see the issue like a, it's a problem. You know, um, I'm trying to think of an example now. Um, it's escaping me right now, but, you know, I, I think I worked on an organisational restructure last year and I was brought in late to this once the crisis was well and truly arrived. But, you know, these people had been told previous to initiating the organisational restructure, the chain the leadership, you know, this particular department of which was split into and amalgamated and so on and roles were made redundant and, you know, just a full-on restructure of, a, of two business units. And they were told leading up to that, you need to get an organisational change team in and this change will take you about 18 months to two years to, to have fully complete. The change leadership did not do that because they didn't see it. They did not see the crisis that was impending of that and they didn't manage it well as a, accordingly. And a person, organisational change specialist, myself, wasn't brought in until about six months into that process when they were really, really hurting because it had been so poorly managed. And uh, consequently, you know, they lost a lot of important staff that was completely avoidable and had you know, a good 12 months of low productivity, which again was not, it was not that it was unavoidable. That risk is always associated with a change like that, but it could have been mitigated and um, probably a good deal of it prevented. And I think organisations, you know, when it's incumbent upon the ask, when we can see, you know, if you can see that this is going to happen, we've got to create that crisis for them. And um, you don't always win that. You don't always win, so to speak, that argument. Um, that case, but it's important to put forward. One of the things that I think we as change practitioners um, fail to alert leaders to all too often is those people who are likely to leave an organization of their own accord when there is a lot of tumultuous change and, and it feels like there's lack of leadership or um, lack of clarity and direction and so forth. The people who leave first are the people who are most skilled in the marketplace and most capable of making change. The very people that the organization should want to keep. So um, the message that, that you're delivering here, I think is extremely important. Yeah, look, these guys were, were exceedingly lucky. They didn't lose a lot more people because of the banking industry at that time in Australia um, was not uh, particularly buoyant. So, you know, without question, if, if the market was a little bit more uh, robust at the time, employees, because these were institutional banker people, so they they get paid a lot. And they, if the market was a lot more buoyant, they absolutely would have gone. They would have lost a lot more staff. Absolutely. You know, and you know, in organisational restructures, the best people are always the first to go. Um, meanwhile, the uh, um, you know, the everybody's hiding under the desk, thinking that they're going to be next, and um, and you're left with the poor productivity of the people who can't move. So I just think um, it does need to be managed really carefully. Well, let's move on. Um, when you and I talked before this podcast, I was intrigued by your description of the workshops that you facilitate. They're related to your principle three, collaborate for change. People don't resist what they create. 
Would you tell us something about these workshops and how you put them together and so forth and so on? Absolutely. So um, I, uh, about three, about five years, I was trained initially in process improvement, Lean Six Sigma actually. And that, that was kind of one of, you know, the pathway for me getting into change management over years began with me involved in process improvement. And one of the things that um, I started doing back then was workshops, um, you know, to gather information and um, work through the, uh, work through the methodology. I used a lot of workshops back then as a, as a tool and, um, and then about four years ago, five years ago, I got introduced to this uh, um, workshop methodology called MG Taylor. And um, it's worth looking up on the internet, but it's um, these collaboration workshops where we bring 20, 30, maybe even 60 people together, 70 people into a room for this structured collaboration uh, by, and decision by design workshops that take three people through a process and at the other end of it, it could be half day, a day, two days, people, a large group of people can come, can work through all of the issues and come to a decision, not necessarily by consensus, but by design, which everybody signs up for. And um, I've used them um, a lot to develop business cases in ideation phases of projects and a lot in change of transition plan, planning as well into large programs, into business as usual. and. They're a fabulous tool and they do exactly what I say in the title is that people don't resist what they create. When you, they do a few things. One is they speed up decision-making because you've got 30, 40 people that need to, you know, to get information out of in the room at one time working on a problem. And of course um, that saves, can save months um, in, a, in say a business case development. The other thing they do though is they create alignment because, you know, we've got 30 people in a room who are then fleshing out the yeah, buts, the how about, the what ifs in real time. And the workshops are structured in a way such that people, one person, a dominant personality, or even a, someone in a high in the hierarchy can dominate the conversation because they're structured in a way where small teams uh, break off into work groups and then come back and share their results and break off into work groups and so on. And over time, over the course of the day, reach decisions. And, um, and also the decisions that are reached are far more powerful because everybody's had a chance to flesh out the issues, the concerns, and have them addressed um, in, a, in, a structured, in a structured manner that wouldn't happen through one-on-one, one-on-two conversations at a time. Um, and they're tremendously powerful. Um, I've now, I just get so much good feedback from doing these workshops and I'm, you know, creating it as a standalone tool, not just a tool within um, organisational change management, consulting and delivery. They're very powerful. Um, look, you know, there's this quote that I put up on the um, uh, study that I, that I quote in the article, which is in a report by Google in 2010, the decisive decade, how acceleration of ideas will transform the workplace. They showed that there's an 81% correlation between collaboration and innovation. And these workshops are right at the forefront of collaboration and you know, the better we can enable organisations to collaborate. And I don't mean necessarily just, um, you know, creating an open workspace and having, um, um, you know, sitting anywhere that you like, although that could be useful. Um, I mean structured structured workshops around a problem that needs to be solved with 30 or 40 people that need, you know, from frontline all the way through to finance and risk 
and um, and executives all in one room at one time working through a problem. I love the sound of this. How do you how do you deal with the uh, sort of hierarchy that exists in the organization when you bring everybody into the room together? Um, that's, that's a great question. And um, honestly, it doesn't become, it's such a, it's such a small problem. It doesn't become an issue because of the way the workshops are structured. Most people think of a workshop sitting around a square table and, or a boardroom and the person with, uh, with influence and power is very clearly visible sitting there and everybody defers to that person um, in the hierarchy. And the fact is they just don't have the information. They, they are able to make, um, capital allocation and resource allocation decisions, but they don't have the information that a person on the front line does. And that information on the front line is also is distributed through many people. And so, um, and throughout the layers of the organisation. So it just doesn't work for good decision-making to have that structure. So the way these workshops are structured is um, following a particular methodology, Scan Focus Act, which is, you know, from MG Taylor, but be that as it may, put aside that methodology, if you just said, look, we're going to create some specific um, blocks, modules within the day, so we've got a half-day workshop, will be a first block where we want everybody to get across the ideas. The second block is where we start to explore those ideas and have deep dives into particular ideas, come up with potential solutions. And then finally, we can't start to do some risk analysis and then we'll start to pick apart those ideas and make a structured plan and choose tentative ideas that we're going to explore and then and then later in the day start to actually um, uh, choose an idea and start to create a plan around it. Um, and that's all done by bringing people into, say we've got 30 people in a room, we'll have seven or eight people in each group um, go off into four corners of the room and work on a particular problem and then come back into the centre and share what they got and then and what they worked out and then build on that in the next exercise in different groups because we split the groups up and mix them up again in the next exercise we might have three three groups of 10 working on a different problem and it just obviates the um, concern for um, a hierarchy a person of a hierarchy or even someone with high degree of technical influence for example to dominate the decision making in the structures ultimately that person might be in the room that needs to make that um, decision, but at least they can make a very informed decisions um, having um, been through that process. So is, is this process used, Daniel, both uh, to make decisions and to inform decisions, or um, is this strictly, you know, the, the decision is made by the group and the process? It's clear that some decisions are actually um, some people's to make um, and the group might um, inform decisions by coming up with options, for example. So that really depends on um, the, the intention and the purpose of the workshop, which these workshops to work well, you don't just show up and, and I facilitate a workshop. There's a design period that takes probably a minimum of two weeks or up to six weeks of iteratively, iteratively designing these workshops in a series of meetings with a design team, usually between three and five people. And the intention, it really depends on the intention. So the intention might be for the group to arrive at a decision on the day. 
The other intention might be for it to come up with a recommendation for endorsement at some other committee, for example. Um, so it really comes down to the intention of the, uh, of the workshop. I hate to say this, but we've already been at this for 20 minutes, so we're going to have to wrap this podcast up. Sure. But Daniel will be back with us again um, to continue the discussion on his nine change management principles from research. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast with Managing Editor Brian Gorman. Be sure to check out our website at changemanagementreview.com. We also invite you to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and join us on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening.